This is the second part of the sixth podcast of the Basics of Software Engineering course. And in this lecture, Mika Mandula is going to tell us about software refactoring. Uh, I actually have two topics that more or less uh, are about the same thing after all. So first I'm going to talk about refactoring, that is uh, improving, improving the created construction or improving the software or the, or the code that was created. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about more when the refactor and especially about bad code smells and uh, anti-pattern. So what is software refactoring? Uh, uh, previously in 1980s or 1990s there was a term called uh, restructuring which pretty much means the same thing. So in the software engineering domain you often see situation where a old concept is introduced with the new term. So restructuring and refactoring pretty much mean the same same thing. Uh, and here I'm gonna use the Martin Fowler's book about refactoring as, as the definition. So it's uh, improving the design of the existing code. Uh, and I actually have the book here so I'm just gonna pass it along about, all about refactoring. So if you want to if you want to look I, I want it back though. So refactoring increases software maintainability, uh, which in other words means uh, ease of further development and, uh, and bug fixing. Uh, software maintainability is, is a bad term, and software evolvability would be much better, but there are historic reasons why it is called software, why, why ease of further development and, and bug fixing is called software maintainability, because in, well, in prehistoric era you often had a timeline, Product here. So let's say in the old world you had a development project that developed some piece of software, and when the project got finished, it was released. So it was maybe a banking system, or it was maybe a system for uh, some United States military. So it was some sort of military system. And then there was a maintenance phase. Um, so software maintainability refers to how easy it is to perform this maintenance phase that comes after the project. Uh, but really, this maintenance phase doesn't actually describe what happens in the, in the software maintenance phase, because it was found out that 80% of the actual changes that are made to the system are improvements, and only 20% of them are bug fixes. Uh, so we are going to use the term software maintainability in this lecture, but uh, evolvability, would, evolvability would be a much better term. Uh, um, this is also used uh, all over in the in software engineering, the software maintainability refers to this maintenance phase and, and the ease of making changes to it. So it's just to have the similar terms in, in all the lectures and, and probably also in your course book. So that was just a bit of sidestep here. Uh, so refactoring does not uh, change the observable behavior of the software. So for example, performance tuning is not considered refactoring. So you're making internal changes to the software so that you improve its maintainability, uh, but the observable behavior to the customer and to the user does not change. 
And uh, this is actually something that good programmers have always done. So they have improved their, they have improved their programs to, to make them more maintainable uh, without being actually aware of that they are doing something fancy called refactoring. So now I'm going to have a short motivation. So why do we actually need refactoring if we have perfect design? So if the design will meet all of our customers' current and future needs, then we really don't need, need refactoring since the design will be perfect. But uh, it's uh, impossible to have a perfect design. Or even if it would be perfect, it would be outdated since there are people who have studied software evolution have found out that the change is uh, inevitable. So the first law of software evolution says that the software which is used in a, in a real, real, in, real, real world environment must change or become less and less useful in that environment. So even if the change, so even if the design would be perfect in, in the phase we are releasing that software, when the time goes by, uh, different types of new requirements will come up and, and the world will change and so on. The software will also have to change. So therefore, you will have to make changes to the, to the design that was once maybe perfect, but in, in let's say five years, it is outdated since you, need, since you need to adapt to the world that is changing. Uh, of course, this does not hold for all software. For example, algorithms and protocols may remain unchanged for, for decades. So if you have an uh, encryption algorithm it, and you have implemented it perfectly, then you do, probably don't have the need to change it. Uh, but for systems that are interacting uh, more directly with the, with the user and the customer, uh, the changes are more or less inevitable. Uh, and the second law, law of software evolution says that the, each change increases complexity. So whenever you do changes to the software, you make it more, more complex unless you do some active efforts to reduce this complexity. So as a consequence, uh, soon the perfect design is, is no longer uh, no longer perfect and it is outdated. Mm, now I have a hidden slide here. Uh, I have a hidden slide here. Can I get it back in some way? Okay, so uh, about refactoring. So the cost of software evol evolution. Uh, I have come up with an example to get some 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 numbers that give you around uh, give you some idea of, of the costs. So Seattle Times estimated that developing Microsoft Vista cost then ten billion dollars. Of course, this is an estimate, and even the Microsoft executives were not sure whether whether the actual number is 10 billion, but it was estimated that it's roughly 10 billion to develop this latest latest version of, of the uh, operating system. Uh, and actually, the evolution of uh, Vista began in, in late 1980s, uh, when Microsoft started developing Windows, Windows NT, NT to replace the replace the Windows 90, 95 and, and that other brands of, of operating systems they had. So actually, Windows Vista is the fifth version of, of Windows NT. So previously you had Windows NT 3.1, so the numbering scheme is a bit awkward there since they started with the version 3. But actually, that's the first version. 
So and then you had version 4 and then you had uh, Windows 2000 and then you had Windows XP and, and the Vista is the fifth version. So we, we can guess that the total cost of evolution would be something around $30 billion over the, uh, well, let's say over the last, last we started in uh, 1990, I think. So this makes it, uh, it's 18 or 17 years old when Vista was released in, in 2007. So uh, during, during the 18 years, it has probably cost around 30 billion to come up with this operating system. So uh, does maintainability really make a difference? Uh, there have been some studies that have compared uh, two functionally equal systems that have a, that the other system has higher maintainability and it's, it's, it's more easier to maintain. Uh, and in both of these studies, the other made in 1987, the other made in 2003, uh, it was found out the less maintainable system uh, took more effort to, to maintain. So that bug fixing was uh, roughly 30% roughly more expensive and adding few new features also was roughly 30% more expensive. So we can get, estimate that if uh, maintainability of, of Windows NT or Windows Vista is, uh, is currently in a good state, that in a bad state it would cost $9 billion, $9 billion, $9 billion more. The total cost of evolution would be that much higher. So yes, I can claim that uh, that software maintainability really makes a difference. Uh, and the difference being about roughly 30% of the of the evolution costs. Uh, of course, there are uh, still more reasons for refactoring, like continuous learning. Uh, this really actually comes through the evolution that uh, through, the, through, the, through the time, even when you have a perfect design, then you through the time, through understanding the technology, understanding the domain, understanding the problem and the customer, you also come up with, with new and better design alternatives. And uh, if you are developing some, some product, then having a, well, you, when you make it the first time, perfect design is not actually possible. Uh, and if I get the pointer here. So, oops. And Brooks actually point, points out that plan to throw one away, that you will anyhow throw one version away since you are, you are building something you really don't understand. Uh, and then you have to be ready to get rid of that version. For example, if, you, if we continue with the Microsoft example, they threw away the, the MS-DOS and the Windows 95 and 98 uh, uh, code base of the operating system when they, in, in 89, they started the NT project that was built completely from scratch. So they threw the one, the first operating system that was like a, uh, they practiced with it and then they made, started out with the, with the better version. Uh, however, in some cases, big refactorings might not be enough. So managers may not allow it. If it's a crucial system to a customer and, and you have deadline presses and so on, you don't have possibilities to do big, big refactoring. So uh, in, in these cases, refactoring might, might be used as an, as an aid in these contexts. Uh, also, the agile software development methods, they actually accept the consequences uh, of the evolution and learning. So XP doesn't try to stop the evolution or, or try to stop the change. It actually embraces the changes. Uh, and refactoring is used uh, as one practice to keep up with the, to, with the changing world. 
So refactoring is a, is a part of uh, so part of software development, uh, actually from from day one. Since software maintenance actually starts from day one, when you write a line of code and you are also and you then you write some more lines of code, you are also maintaining the lines that you wrote previously. So in the early it was perhaps considered as less important less important maintenance activity, uh, uh, which. We cannot actually say that maintenance would be unimportant since I'm going to get some more numbers here. Actually, 40 to 95% of TLC means total life cycle costs. So when they studied, the, studied these types of projects where you, where you first made a project and then you had a maintenance phase, they found out that the total life cycle costs uh, of the system, that 40 to 95% of them actually came from the maintenance phase. So maintenance phase actually in the era of, uh, or in the area of, of projects, it also makes up the substantial costs. So you cannot even be say that it, maintenance would be less important. Uh, and on, on the other side, you can see some benefits of refactoring that are, uh, well, some of them come from the book by Martin Fowler that is going somewhere over there. And the other is from article by, by Arnold. So. Uh, it improves software design. Programs are easier to understand. It is easier to find bugs. Of course, with the software development speed, we discussed this with the previous slide, that you have less cost in the, in the software evolvability. Also, testing and documenting is easier. Uh, and also, one interesting point is that uh, uh, dependency on individuals decreases. So if the software is, in, is highly maintainable, then you are not so not so dependent on certain individual that has programmed the software. Uh, also, the job satisfaction will be greater, at least for the new employees who come to the, come to the organization and there is some software they have to maintain and have to make improve, improvements to it. Uh, also, you extend the system's lifetime. Okay, so that was the quite long motivation for the for the topic, and uh, here I have a few simple examples. Uh, here is a piece of code that uh, prints prints a salary sheet. First, it prints out the company logo, and after that, like the comment expresses, it calculates the salary. So you get the number of hours that the person has worked, and then you get the wage, and then you get the salary, and finally you print out the print out the salary. So this is a this is a pretty simple method and it is just to used in this example. There actually wouldn't be a, no reason to refactor this uh, unless you are making some extension to the system. But the problem is that it's actually doing two things. Oops. Uh, so a better alternative would be to split this in two methods. So in the first method you uh, print the salary and the other is used actually to calculate the salary. So, so the first method prints out the company logo and then it calls calculate salary that is used to perform all the necessary calculations. And this is this simple, very simple refactoring and probably every one of you have already done that if you have done your exercise in the programming course. Uh, at least I think you should have been doing them. You probably bet get better grades from the uh, from the assistants. 
So here we have another example. Uh, we have some some code that is doing something. Uh, hold on, I'm trying to get the pointer out. So we have some car, car object that can be null in some, some cases. Uh, and perhaps there is code somewhere else that sets the car to be, to get actually instance to that, to that object. But in this case, we have a problem in the code that we have several of these checks. So not only this piece of code, but this similar logic is repeated in several places that you test, you test the whether the car is actually null and then you do something. And if it's not null, you call the, uh, call the car object to get the, get the engine. And if it's null, then you get the, get the basic engine with the static method. So you have several of these uh, in the program code. Uh, and having, the, having to make all these null checks can be actually quite painful. So a better alternative would be to use a, a null object. Here is, we extend the car by getting a null car and also replace it with get engine method. So at this point, you probably don't understand how this helps. But as I see, show you the code, you will understand. So you replace all the places where you, you would set the car value to null to, with the code where you set the, set the null car in. And in this way, you get rid of, the, rid of this code in several places. You had, for example, in one case, I had an instance where I had like 50 of these null checks where I have to check whether some value was null and then do something uh, and if it was and, and do something else, else if it was not. So you get rid of all these nasty checks and then you can replace the code with just one call that you, where you call the engine as the car cannot be null. So this is uh, uh, one actually one of the more complex refactorings. When Previous one was was probably the most simple, and then this is one of one of the one of the more more complex. And here we have another another example. We have a class engine, and it has a method called cylinder count. Uh, and based on the type of engine you have, it does different things. So if you have a family car engine, it returns you the the base cylinder count. Uh, if you have an executive car engine, then it, it's multiplied by two, so you get twice as many cylinders, since when you are executive, you want to have a bigger engine in your car. And finally, you can have a race car engine, and then it calls another method that calculates the number of, of race car cylinders based on, based on various factors. Uh, the problem is, in this case, that this is not very good object-oriented style. This is actually an imperative style. So the idea here is to use inheritance. So to get rid of all these type codes, you replace them with subclasses. So you get family car engine, you get executive car engine, a race car engine, and they all have a method called cylinder count. So after this change, you no longer need this uh, hassle with, the type, with using type codes to uh, represent what type of engine we are actually dealing with, since you are using inheritance to replace this. Um, and so the, 
So the example continues. We have evolution. This is the same engine we have. We have engine and then we have any, and it is extended the family car engine, executive car engine, and race car engine. But then you realize that, oops, we need different fuels. And so for a family car, we can have a petrol family car engine or a diesel family car engine. Uh, and then you realize, that, well, for an executive car, we can also have a diesel and petrol petrol engine. So you make extensions there also. And finally, for a race car, you can have a petrol engine, and then you can have a, some sort of alcohol race car engine. Uh, the problem with this arrangement is that, for example, these two diesel, uh, this diesel family car engine class and this diesel executive car engine class probably have much duplicated logic in there since they're both dealing with diesel engines. So there is probably a lot of duplication here. And also, this does not allow to have a race car with the, with the diesel engine directly. And you cannot have a family car with the alcohol engine. So this design has become a bit problematic during the, during the evolution of this, our imaginary system. So again, yes, we recognize duplications. This is called parallel inheritance hierarchies that we are seeing here. Uh, and if you would want to, want to have a truck engine and you, ha you would like to have the truck to be running either at, at alcohol or at diesel, then you would have to make an extension to the engine class once again to make a truck engine, and then you would have to make another extension of the truck class, truck engine class to have a petrol engine and, and to have an alcohol engine and so on. And adding new engines to the system and, and new fuel types becomes unnecessary complex. So to get rid of this, we get the improved solution. Well, we separate the we do this true refactoring. I'm just showing you the class diagrams of the actual end results. So we get the engine, uh, and we, the engine is extended to petrol engine, diesel engine, and alcohol engine. And then we have the car type that is separated from the engine. So each engine has a certain car type, and in this, in this case, it can be executive car engine, family car engine, or race car engine. So now we can combine these engines uh, and the car types freely we can have an alcohol engine in an executive car and uh, we don't have to add so much additional code to the system and also if you want to have a if you want to have a car type truck then you just extend this car class and you'll get all the possible engine combinations here for, for more or less free so you don't have to have uh, unnecessary classes in your system or an unnecessary logic in there so this is a better solution to the uh, one that was before of course, some of you may argue that why wasn't the system designed like this? Well, this is just an example and, and tries to illustrate the evolution that you cannot actually anticipate everything that, that is coming. But in this case, the design would have been quite poor if we would have started with, with this type of design. So when to refactor? Uh, well, the idea is that uh, refactoring should be integrated with no normal software development. So one should refactor when, uh, whenever one is adding a feature so that you first you, of course, design the feature and then you think how, how you're going to add it to the system and they can, then you make the necessary refactorings to the system and after that you implement the, implement the change to the system. 
uh, this is a, a one approach that can be used. Uh, and of course, there is another one if you have a, a lot of code that should be refactored, but uh, it is difficult to uh, integrate the time for refactoring it during development. So you can have a time box for software refactoring. Maybe you have some uh, refactoring day. You refactor one day a week. Uh, you have a refactoring. You have a refactoring week, or you have some sort of iteration where you make refactorings, preparing for the for the next release. Uh, and for example, Microsoft has a. Again, I'm talking about Microsoft. I don't know why my, all my examples come from Microsoft. Probably because there has been so much literature about about the company. But anyway, so Microsoft has a concept of 20% 20, 20 tax for refactoring. So actually. When they start out new development, they, there is a guideline that people should budget 20% for, for making the code better, for making the code more maintainable. Uh, and this time should be used prefer, prefer, preferably in the start of the project. So when you start something, uh, you would have 20% of the time to make the necessary changes, and then you start to develop the new, fe new features to the system. So. What do I tell my manager? Uh, this is mostly problem when the manager is not technically oriented. He, he may not he or she may not understand that why you would have to make changes to the code that has already been written. So the short answer is being well, you well you don't. You try to integrate it with your no normal work practices. Uh, and the long answer is being that well you present the benefits of refactoring that were <coughs> collected in, in slide slide seven of this presentation. But uh, with technically oriented managers, it should, this should not be actually a problem. Uh, before you start refactoring, uh, you certainly should have refactoring tools. Uh, currently, refactoring tools support, support is quite good and good, good and most uh, most uh, software development ideas uh, like Eclipse have a refactoring features integrated in them. So this is currently not a problem. Previously. These features were not integrated to the integrated to the tools, and then you have to buy buy separate tools to do something like this. Uh, of course, you should have unit testing, since when you do changes to the existing code, you want to be sure that nothing is broken. And actually, unit testing gives you a courage to do the refactorings. So without unit testing, there there is a possibility that when there is a possibility that you break the existing system, and then, well, the managers. Will, and your co-workers may not like you very much. Uh, so here are some terms of the refactoring domain. Uh, refactoring was already previously defined, so controlled way to improve software structure without changing its behavior. Uh, here are some other terms. Uh, Re-engineering is uh, actually refers to a larger changes to the system. So you examine the X system existing system and make, and make plans how to change it. So you first perform, maybe if you have a big legacy system, you perform reverse engineering where you try to analyze the existing system. You may not even have design documents or, or anything else left. You have just a legacy system and the source code somewhere. So you have to do reverse engineering to get the higher abstraction level from that system. And after reverse engineering, uh, you plan the changes you are going to make to the system, and then you forward engineer it to, uh, to the new system you, are, you want to do. Uh, of course, there is a term that is missing here that is called rewrite, and then you 
simply start from from scratch. You don't even try to examine the existing system. You simply scrap it and start from uh, start from uh, with clean slate. So, uh, summary about refactoring. Uh, the perfect design is imp impossible through software evolution and, and because of continuous learning and, and better design alternatives. Uh, you need refactoring to keep your software system maintainable or evolvable. Uh, but however, refactoring is no excuse to omit software design. You should always design the system as, as good at, as it can be. Uh, I show you some examples of refactorings. You can look more on the book uh, that is going through. And now we go to the next topic, and I have something like 10 minutes. But I think I will get through this. So, anti patterns and bad code smells describe some problems in the source code when you should uh, try to perform refactoring. So how to build your own atomic bomb in seven easy steps. So pattern history, mm, we start with design patterns that represent re reusable designs. And this is based on, on the pattern languages book that focused on traditional software, traditional, uh, traditional architecture on, of buildings. And it was rediscovered by software people in 1987, and they thought, well, maybe we can also have design patterns that, that tell us how to design software and how to make better software. And the motivation is that they encapsulate the years of industry experience of software development that can be more quickly transferred to the new generations. Uh, Anti-patterns, on the other hand, represent frequently occurring undesirable patterns. And actually, they have been longer around of software engineering than design patterns. You can see that Fred Brooks's The Mythical Man Month where you, uh, is an anti-pattern. The Mythical Man Month being that you add more people to a project that is already late, and it is even more late when you add the new people to the project as you have to educate them to the project. So this is one anti-pattern that was uh, discovered in the 1970s. Uh, so the term anti-pattern appeared uh, uh, soon after the book of by Gang of Four in 1984, and the motivation here is that you try to learn from your mistakes in order to not to repeat them in the future. Uh, so there are two mm, books. Uh, that there are uh, two different branches. There are there is a book about anti-pattern patterns that actually covers a wider range of top topics. So you have development, uh, development anti-patterns, architectural and man managerial. And then you have a bad code smells that are presented in the Martin Fowler's book, and they are in fact uh, development, uh, software develop, development level anti-patterns, and of course mostly suitable for uh, for refactoring. So here I'm going to call, go through a taxonomy taxonomy of bad code smells, so you get some kind of idea of what problems can can be in the code. So, so the first class is called plotters. And it represents something that is too large. So you can have a you can have a method that is too long, or you can have a large class that tries to do everything inside of application. Or in a smaller scale, you can have a long parameter list. Say you have 10 or 15 parameters going through a method. That this can be quite complex to understand. And uh, hopefully nobody hopefully nobody nobody designs 
software to be like this. So uh, we think that these smells grow a little bit at a time. So the long method doesn't burn as, as long, but people simply add more logic to the method and, and so on. And new people come and they add more logic and sooner or later the method becomes too long to be maintainable. Uh, then we have a, another type of problems that are object orientation abuses. Uh, and in this case, the concept uh, of object orientation is not fully understood. So for example, if you get a C programmer uh, that, come, uh, that comes to the Java context, he may, he may be doing such, such mistakes, although even, he would, even when he would otherwise be a, a quite good and talented programmer. So for example, switch statement is, is one of these problems in, in C code, uh, having a, this, type of, this type of type codes with the switch statement would be quite uh, quite good solution for this type of problem. Uh, and you can also have uh, alternative classes with different interfaces. So uh, in this case, in the engine class, you would, would not have a common interface for the race, for a race car, a family car, or executive car. So you would have a type code in the engine class, and then it would tell that what, what class we are actually dealing with. Are we dealing with race car, or family car, or executive class? And the improved solution would be, again, the one that we saw previously, where you have a common interface through the car type, where you access all these classes through this one interface or one, one base class. So this would be the bad code smell that is shown in this slide. You have different interfaces for these. There are there is a, there is no common base class, and then there is a, a different uh, different method names for the for the same functionality. You have cylinders, you have cylinder count, and you have cylinder number. Uh, then we have change preventers. Uh, of course, all code smell to make uh, make changes more difficult to the system, but uh, they make these make it uh, unnecessarily difficult. For example. Uh, shotgun surgery. In this case, it means that if you change the database from Oracle to SQL Server, uh, if you have a shotgun surgery smell in your system, it means that it requires changes to several classes. So there may be database-dependent code in the system, and it is spread all over in the, the different classes in the system. So and the different modules contain this separate uh, database-dependent uh, handling logic. So what you, do, you should do is to get all of these database-dependent stuff to a one class, and then you only have to make changes to this one class when you are changing the database database vendor, vendor from one to another. Uh, and then they violate the principle that one external change should, all, should only affect one class in the system. The external change, the external change being that the, the database, database is changed from Oracle to SQL Server. Uh, then you have uh, dispensables. So all code is uh, all code needs effort to understand and maintain. And if code is not used or used or if it's redundant, it needs to be removed. So we can have dead code in the system. System that is not well, the code that is not executed in in any scenarios. So you you can have a speculative generality. This means that the uh, system developer tries to. Uh, anticipate the future changes. So if we are creating a code for a, for a ball, then he may 
anticipate changes that well maybe in the future we would need a ball that is shaped like this and then he would make all unnecessary logic to the glass inside the glass ball so that it in the future we could easily make this change to uh, or we could easily replace this glass ball with the, this glass rectangle and this is unnecessary since uh, he really cannot uh, know whether whether the future requires that the system we should have a, have this type of functionality that we could also ha handle rectangles. So he's making the system unnecessarily complex uh, and trying to anticipate the future, and, and that is uh, quite difficult. Uh, uh, also, duplicate code uh, is is one of these dispensables. So in duplicate code, uh, it is regarded by by many authors as 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 one of one big problems. Uh, Fowler and Beck say that it is uh, number one in the stink parade and. And Hunt and Thomas say that you shouldn't repeat yourself, and Cunningham says that once and only once, and, and so on. So, in, in this case, you can also have a, two types of duplication. You can have, a, you can have synthetic, synthetic duplication. So, you have identical code fragments that are duplicated to different places of the system. Uh, and finding out those duplications can be, can be done with tools. There are good tools to find those duplications. From a large system, human eye may not. If you have one million lines of code, how can you find duplication in the system without a tool? Well, probably you can't. So you, you should really use a tool to find that type of duplication. Uh, but you can also have a semantic duplication. So you, so you have a fragments of code that are not identical uh, in, a, in a syntactic, syntactic sense. But they have a uh, but they have an identical intent. So, for example, you can have a bubble sort and quick sort. They have both sor sorting al algorithms, and, and they do the same thing. Of course, there are efficiency issues here, uh, but they bo both have an identical intent. Uh, uh, and with these cases, you cannot really have a tool help available. Uh, I have seen cases where people have implemented a logic that is already available in in, in a class library to a system. To their own system, and, and there is like cases like when you can replace these uh, these 20 or 30 lines of code here, since the library class already offers this functionality. So having this sort of this type of duplication is you need some some experienced developer to tell that well, you don't need this code since it's already been done elsewhere. Uh, so you can have a coupling related problems. Uh, low coupling is actually desirable quality between objects. So you can have a so you can have a you can have methods that are placed inside of wrong classes, and you can have message chains and and and, and so on. Also, if you have too much delegation, uh, equalizing, minimizing coupling, this can be bad as well. So you can have too many middlemen that are not doing anything and just try to hide the coupling in the system and so on. Okay, so this is the last slide. Uh, so, bad code smells and anti-patterns, they present frequently occurring problems in the design. Anti-patterns can also be find, uh, found at higher levels, so you can find uh, problems in software processes and software management like mythical man-month and so on. And then we go through the taxonomy of code smells where we saw bloaters, object orientation abusers, change preventers, dispensables and uh, couplers. My time is up and I'm okay. done. Let's give a round of applause.